Hello, everybody. This is uh, I'm Gotti Kaufman from RCLCO, and I'm uh, delighted to uh, be here today for our first uh, live recording of our Great Minds uh, in Real Estate interviews. Uh, we have uh, a very special guest today, Randall Lewis, and I'll introduce him in a moment. Uh, good to have you here, Randall. Welcome. Buddy, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Uh, before we launch, I wanted to spend a couple of seconds on logistics. Uh, this is a live recording. It will be, uh, it's both being recorded, but it's also a live webinar. So we would love to have and encourage audience participation. Uh, in a moment, I'll introduce Josh Bourne, who you can see is with us here today. Good morning, Josh. And uh, Josh will be our uh, Q&A moderator. He'll be the voice of God, if you will, uh, jumping in with questions uh, from the audience. So uh, Josh, if you don't mind, would you tell us how can people post questions to you and what process are you going to go through to uh, sort through the questions? Absolutely. Thanks, Gotti, and glad to be here, Randall. Thanks for being on. Uh, as Gotti mentioned, and some of you have joined our other webinars, it's as simple as just submitting through the Q&A portal that's here through Zoom. I'll be monitoring and moderating throughout. We're going to try to keep the Q&A to the final 15 minutes. Uh, but however, as Gotti said, we'd love it to be interactive. So please submit your questions throughout. If there's a good point for me to jump in with one of your questions, I'll certainly do so. I don't want to interrupt their flow. But then at the end, we'll try to get to everybody's questions as well. So thank you again for being here. And I'll actually turn my screen off in the meantime to let you guys go and continue to monitor questions in the background. Terrific. Thank you, Josh. And while we're at it, we'd also like to thank uh, Daniel Kagan, uh, Diana Black, and Lauren Hinson that have been uh, very helpful in pulling together the series and today's uh, webinar. So, good. Well, Randall, as I said, welcome on board. Good to have you here today. Um, for those who don't know, and I don't, I don't, I doubt many people don't know Randall Lewis. Uh, Randall has been a good friend of mine for well over 20 years, probably more like 30 years now. But I don't want to make this young man look like he's any older than uh, people might think. And uh, uh, I, I was always impressed by Rendell as a friend, as a colleague, and as a professional to observe his um, relentless drive to find innovation, creativity, and, and, uh, and apply it in his company. And Lewis is a large land owner, developer, was also a home builder until they sold the company to Kaufman and Broad uh, some 30 years ago. And uh, the leadership of the company, which is a family-owned and run company, uh, is a very interesting study and collaboration among siblings. For those of you who run uh, family businesses, that is an interesting model and a good model for how to do so over time. But uh, what um, Lewis Group of Companies does is develop and own property in California, Nevada, Southern California, Northern California, and throughout Nevada. Uh, they do master plan communities where they buy land, develop and sell land to uh, builders. They develop apartments and commercial uh, retail centers uh, on their properties and on properties they buy. And they also develop uh, industrial buildings, uh, primarily in, in the Inland Empire in Las Vegas, but uh, throughout. Uh, Randall himself has a very long track record of very successfully uh, and uh, importantly supporting important causes like health, education and the arts. Uh, and uh, along with his uh, family, siblings, they have been uh, generous givers to numerous causes. And we may have some time to talk about that a little bit today, but also it'll be good to do so. Uh, in addition to that, he has been very active in both uh, the public and private sectors. 
in Southern California and throughout. Uh, he is a member and very active with SCAG, the Southern California Association of Government, uh, as a, uh, as a, in the leadership council. Uh, he has been a generous giver to both UCLA and U U USC, University of Southern California. He is a governor of the uh, Urban Land uh, Foundation and has been a trustee of the Urban Land Institute. And then uh, finally, he is an active board member of a number of not-for-profit organizations uh, across Southern California. Uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you, Reynolds, today again is your uh, strong bend towards uh, exploring uh, unpacking and applying innovation uh, and creativity and entrepreneurship. So um, with that in mind, uh, I just want to make sure that you're comfortable. Welcome aboard. Uh, Thank you. And, uh, this I, is I'm, my first day back in the office. Welcome. To, I was just going to ask you, so where do we find you and how has COVID-19 uh, uh, impacted your life over the last three or four months? Well, I've been working from home to model good behavior and also just a number of our key executives and employees have been working from home. It, it's been good. It's been a real transition for me. I'm not a, strong at technology, but I'm good at Zoom. And it, it's been a good experience. It, I feel sorry. It's been tough on my wife and our three dogs, but, <laughs> but, but so far, everyone's good. And I'm happy to say our employees are safe. We've really taken a lot of care to make sure our employees are safe. And so far, they're, all they're doing very, very well. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and I'm proud of you for thinking about your employees uh, first. Uh, I should also say that whatever you've been doing for the last three months, you should continue doing it because you look terrific. Well, we have a treadmill. I've been doing 10,000 steps every day, and on the weekends, I'm trying to do 20,000 steps each day. So it's a, wow. it helps because I'm not getting other activities. So I, I have been doing that, trying to work out very hard. That is something to aspire to. Congratulations. Well, keep up the good work, my friend. Thank you. So let's talk about innovation. And uh, I remember you're telling me that uh, you have taken classes from Peter Drucker at Claremont uh, before uh, Peter Drucker was Peter Drucker. So you know him when. Uh, yeah. is, that, is that where you began curious about innovation? Yes. And, and well, Peter Drucker is Peter Drucker. I mean, he was younger than I am. He was 65, I think, when I took classes from him. But he was just a fantastic professor. I was able to take three classes from him. And I think the one that was most impactful was on innovation and entrepreneurship. And so ever since then, it's, it's just been a field that I've been interested in. It really is a way how to, how to solve problems differently, how to help customers in a different way, and how to hopefully help your organization be profitable. Many people confuse innovation with invention, uh, with where invention is coming up with something brand new that nobody thought about before. Uh, often in, in inventions are, are worthless. They don't really go anywhere. Uh, innovation isn't that. Innovation, at least the way I think about it, is applying an existing uh, technology or knowledge or tools for a new purpose and finding a way to unpack value or unpack impact through that process of innovation, which is, again, uh, applying in things uh, in a new way. Is that how you think about innovation or do you have a different Absolutely. take on it? Absolutely. It, it, it goes to take, how do you take existing processes, existing knowledge and say, can you be creative and can you solve problems for people in a different way? Drucker, this was year, decades ago. He used to say, look for the future that has already happened. Look out your window, what's already happening 
that maybe others aren't paying attention to or you're not paying attention to. And then just look at your processes and look at what the customer's needs are in any sector and try to solve them using existing resources. So I spend a lot of time on that. So Randall, a lot of people think uh, when they think about the strategy of the company, they think about what core competency, what are the competitive advantages that they have as an organization? And would you consider uh, innovation and creativity to be an aspirational or even a realistic uh, core competency uh, for, for Lewis? Yes, it is. I hope it's not aspirational because I think we're already there. Aspirational would be to continue it, and especially over the decades ahead. As companies, you're always trying to think, what are your core competencies? And it could be in land buying or entitlement or financing or marketing or creativity. And then you have to think, how can you put those together in a different way to create a sustainable program? And, and sustainable may be the wrong word because it's always going to be changing as the environment changes. But I, I think for us, we have always tried to think how to, how to be innovative and also be entrepreneurial, which is a little bit different, how to be nimble, how to create opportunities that aren't there. there was, there's an author who just wrote an article who said, going forward, you're not going to find any good real estate deals. You're going to have to create the good real estate deals. And I think there was a lot of truth to what that author said. Yeah. That's very insightful uh, prediction. When you look back on the history of Lewis, your involvement with it, what might be a couple of examples of things that uh, were innovations that really paid out? Well, I think a, a number of them. One was, I mean, there's a lot of talk now about single family rentals. We've been doing those for 20 years now. And it came because we were a strong home builder and we also were an apartment developer. And we began to see that not everybody who's a renter wants to rent an apartment. Many do, but many don't. And so I think we were very early on the single family rental program to say, can there be a different way to satisfy the needs of people who want to rent but may not want an apartment? I think early on, we recognize the customer journeys are different for everybody. And I think the customer experience, maybe we'll talk about that later, but one of the things we saw was that people go through pretty predictable transitions. So again, this was 20 years ago, but we created a, a home buyers club for renters to help them accumulate down payments, give them credit counseling, and ideally to move from a Lewis apartment to a Lewis home. We felt very good about that. We created rent to own programs where some of your rent could get applied to your down payment. Those are harder to do now with financial changes, but I, I think those were two examples where I felt very good that we were really ahead of the curve using existing capabilities, but applying them in a very different way. Yeah. What was the source of that innovation? How, how did the idea bubble up? It just came because we have different divisions in the company. And boy, it's not me. There were a whole team. My brothers were involved and a lot of key staff people were. But we would hear first from the home building side, there are people who say, well, I want to buy, but I don't have a down payment. Or I want to buy, but I need to plop down somewhere for two years or three years. We would hear from renters, hey, I think I should buy, but I don't know how to buy a house. Even now, we still hear that, that buying a house is scary. So I think it was just listening to our staff, but also listening to customers, both potential home build buyers who couldn't buy, 
and trying to think, well, what are the barriers? And we said, well, what if we could place you somewhere? And then listening to the renters, especially the renters was a surprise because to us as a home builder, of course, you just go to a sales office and get a loan and you've got a house. That's scary to a lot of people. So we saw, I think it came from two sides of the company. So did it turn out that those renters were really home buyers uh, in the makings and then they ended up, in fact, two or three years later buying? Or yeah, we did had you very, discover a whole new market? Both, both. I think for a lot, you know, they talk about the American dream is to own a home. And I believe that for some numbers, 60, 70%, 80%, it probably is to own a home. There's a strong percentage where that's not the American dream anymore. They, they value the flexibility or the mobility. But I think the, for us, it was try to say for that 70%, how could we make that dream happen? How could we let you know that it's possible? And we still try to do that now. It's harder that we're not a home builder and it's harder that there's so many different home builders, but we still are trying to work with our renter population to try to say, how, how can we get them in houses? And if so, hopefully they're in our master plan communities with our guest home builders. So fast forward 20 years, now we have an established business in uh, single family rentals where the operators are telling us that most of their tenants, most of their residents are permanent renters, or at least long-term renters. They're not people who are waiting until or trying to accumulate capital so they can convert into being homeowners. They, just want to rent and that is how they prefer to live. Uh, have you observed that in your portfolio and are you changing your business or have changed your business at all in light of that observation? Well, we're certainly looking at lease terms. I mean, it was so normal to do a 12 month lease term. <clears throat> and now we've been looking and doing, we, we will do much shorter lease terms. If someone wants a four month lease, we'll take them. They'll pay up because there's a lot of cost in the transition but we've had very good luck with 15 month leases and 24 month leases. And so we're, we're exploring that a lot to say for these permanent renters and how can we accommodate them in a way that may be good for us and good for them. We're doing a lot of experimenting just on length terms and do you, do you automatically raise the rent 2%. I, I think we'll find there are a lot of renters that if they knew the predictability they would say, I'll take a, a longer term lease and I'll agree to rent increases as long as it's predictable. And right. from a landlord's point of view, if you can save a turnover cost and a vacancy, that can be enormous. Yeah. You talked about this, that, I mean, some of the best innovations I think for the apartment industry now are coming from the single family rental industry, companies like Tricon and others that you know. I mean, we're studying them. These are newcomers to the industry they have really invented new ways of leasing homes right. and doing it at a distance and also doing customer service. So, I mean, one of the sources of innovation or creativity is looking out of your industry, looking at newcomers. Who would have thought some of these people buying out foreclosures that they would not only help grow an industry, but really change the industry and teach the incumbents some teaching the old dogs some new tricks. Right. And that's innovation, obviously, uh, yes. picking up those technologies and applying them to a new segment of the business or a new business altogether. Uh, as you kind of stay on the on this one innovation, uh, which really was a trend, right? You you um, out of necessity in the early nineteen uh, in the early two thousand, 
discovered that you need to help people become homeowners because they wanted to be homeowners but couldn't afford to. So you made a renters with a lease to own sort of a program. Then you uncovered a, uh, a, a more long-term renter who's renter by choice, not by necessity, not because they can't afford to buy it, but at least for now, they want to rent a single family home or a low density product. So you adapted to that. And now uh, here we are in 2020, uh, COVID-19, all the environment that's around us, uh, necessity is the mother of all inventions. You found uh, the wisdom of how other companies have uh, done virtual marketing, virtual leasing, uh, and, and other things differently. Where do you think this trend is going and what is your strategy as far as further innovating your rental property product and uh, in, in service packages, your single family rental uh, product? And what, what's next in your uh, agenda or your agenda for that innovation? Well, first, trying to figure out how to make them work in California. A lot of the single family rental activity which your company's helping many people with, is in Arizona, it's in Texas, it's in low cost areas. It's hard to do it in California because of the cost of land and fees. So we're looking at some other models to say, well, maybe there's models where you do it at, at 15 to an acre, a tiny house or duplexes or 18 to an acre. Is there a hybrid product that has the characteristics of a single family home, but has the cost of an apartment community? So we're spending a lot of time on that we're also really trying to understand, Gadi, the, the, the customer journey. And it's each and every individual has this journey. And we're trying to see, I, I think that there will be a move where we may get people who rent one of our apartments, won't be ready to go buy a house for whatever reason, but may be ready to transfer or move up to a great Lewis apartment community program that offers a very different, different living experience. So we're trying to understand that more. Can we take people on that journey the very next step? Hopefully three years after that, we'll get them to buy a home in one of our planned communities. We're also trying to look, what, what are the services those renters want? That, I think typically if somebody rents from a large institution with a thousand scattered houses, they may not get quite the same level of professional management that we can do in a cluster. Also, we, we do a lot to try to build a sense of community and we're trying to think in some detached programs by putting them next to our larger apartment communities. Can we get the best of both worlds? Someone can have a yard, someone can keep a dog. But if they want to walk across the street and use a gym, if they want to walk across the street to go to a wine tasting class or a, a kid's class, we can give them the best of both worlds. So we're really exploring that. We found one interesting thing with where we've done house communities across the street from big apartment communities, it's a pretty powerful marketing tool. And yet most of them don't take advantage of it. So it's like having a party you invite people to and most of them don't show you enough to get that much food. We have found having a gymnasium, having programs across the street, it lets them have the comfort they could use it. But the reality is we don't get that much usage from them. That's a great idea. Uh, th thank you for sharing that thought. Uh, you can live in a single family home and get all the benefits of living in an apartment complex without living in an apartment itself, meaning yeah. uh, access to the amenities, the services, the activities. And, the and my advice to you is you're advising your master plan community developers who are exploring this, consider partnerships, put your rentals across the street from someone else's apartments and come up with a cross-marketing schema. I think it will help in many ways for your clients. 
that's a terrific idea. Do you, um, do you expect to see more um, single family rentals, uh, purpose built single family rentals in Lewis future? Yes, not as many as we'd like to do though. And it's, again, it's just because of the cost, cost structure. I know my brother Robert, who runs all our Nevada operations, he's interested in this and we'd like to see, can we make it work in Nevada? So we're, we're just planning one now that'll be in Chino, that'll be a couple hundred homes and we've got a couple hundred more. So we, I mean, we're just a small family, so we won't do 10,000s of these, but if we could do a thousand more, 2,000 more, I'd be very, very happy. Yeah. But it's good advice to others to consider doing more of this and to do it maybe in tandem or uh, in the same vicinity as a multifamily rental program and find a way to, to collaborate to, to gain some efficiencies and maybe some competitive advantage. So you know, we, we talked earlier, just look out your window and see what's already happening. In a lot of the communities we've studied, and I don't know about outside of California, but they're already in the single family communities, 20 or 30% are already do rental homes. And so this is already happening. That the trick will be, yeah, what can you do to compete with those? And in a lot of cases, it's gonna be professional management. Absolutely. And, and we find all over the country that there is very good market response to the professionally managed single family operations. So long as it's professionally managed and, and done well, and people are prepared to pay a premium and they do pay a premium for yes. to rent an apartment, a home from a professional manager as opposed to a mom and pop, which is a much less efficient market. So what other trends have you been watching or innovations have you been more recently, and recently I mean before COVID-19, have you been uh, tracking and maybe some examples of things that worked, maybe some examples of things that didn't work so well, where you thought, eh, this might be interesting, but didn't quite pan out? Well, things that we were tracking a little bit before, but tracking more now, I mean, it's common knowledge now, people can rent apartments and buy houses and make a great selection virtually. That was happening, it was gonna come, COVID just sped it up by three years or five years. We're really trying to track, Gotti, what, what does it mean going forward? I know one of our mutual friends is a large builder saying, what does that mean to the future of brokers? Do we all have to pay brokers as much as we paid before? What does it mean for interior design? What does it mean for merchandising? So I, I think that the trend towards using technology to sell homes, to buy apartment apartments, it's gonna continue. Now we need to think, what does that mean going forward? What does it mean? And can we drive down cost in any way by doing that? I, I think there's gonna be some real opportunities to drive down costs, in which case we win and the customer wins. I think it's gonna give us some opportunities also to do things on customers' terms. I mean, so many of us tell our customers, you have to work to come into our sales office from 10 to five. But what if they wanna do business and it's not 10 to five? This weekend I went to a project, I won't say who it was, the office wasn't open and there were some customers just sitting in the parking lot. Well, that's a shame that that has to, it was a shame for me because I drove there, but it was a shame for those customers. I think, again, to, to me it's all about how do we serve the customers in new ways to make it easy for them. And is, is it all prop tech? Is it is that the solution out of those? A little that? bit. PropTech is one I am not an expert on, but I'll, I'll give you examples of things we're trying to do. As we create new communities, 
we're always trying to think what kind of amenities do you do a focus group? Do you call Gaudio for advice? But one of the things we just discovered is why not look at what's being used? And so just doing some simple things, and we're done, we're primitive in what we do, but we've been using our key fob system to try to say, well, when are people actually going to the, the gymnasiums in our projects? We've been using cameras to try to say, how do they use the facilities? And then it turns out in all our gymnasiums, so many of the machines have meters that say, is, is the bicycle used more than the treadmill? Is the treadmill by the window used more than the treadmill in front of the, the mirror? We're trying to say, how could we use technology to better understand not what our managers think or we think customers want, but to say, what are the customers actually doing? Right. And, and we're very primitive in this, but I think we're ahead of a lot of our competitors to try to say, how can that technology help us better understand what the customers are doing so we can provide more of it in the future? That's a great example of applying technology to, uh, to new use. And are you finding that, in fact, your, the data supports or does it contradict what your managers and, uh, and marketing people tell you? Well, for the most part, it, it supports what the managers are saying. We hopefully have good managers and they're paying good attention to the customer. Right. But it, especially some of the data on the equipment and the machines. You, again, we never thought to look to say what well, one machine is getting used 30 hours a week and 150 hours a week, it's telling us something. Is it the machine or is it the location? Or is there some other variable? So right. we're early in that process. We haven't figured out how to apply it to some of the other rooms in, in, in our apartments, our planned communities. We, we put in other rooms, we put in business centers, we put in theater rooms, we do a lot of amenities. Yeah. Interestingly enough, one of the things we've learned, we, we put in business centers in almost all our new apartments. And the thought has been, why would anyone use a business center? Well, we're finding out a lot of people do use the business centers. This was pre-COVID. And it could be they, there are two people living in one, a one bedroom place and someone wants to work at 11 at night, or it's someone who wants to get away to study. We're, we're finding a lot of people using our business centers. And now we're trying to think with the COVID, it, does it tell us there's a new opportunity for business centers? Right. Those are things we're trying to use our technology to say, how, how can we get better? So have, has this technology uh, observation, technology-based observations, have they uh, driven any kind of significant retrofitting of existing facility? You've been, you own and operate apartments that are, you know, 10 and 20 years old, maybe even longer. So have well, you gone back and changed things? It's a little bit for our older ones, but it's more for our newer properties. Just, I mean, like any developer, our best project is the one that's gonna open next year. So we're always obsessed with getting better and better. I think yeah. if we can be faulted, we sometimes don't take those learnings and go back to our existing properties and we probably should do a better job at that. But mostly we're looking at our new properties and trying to think how do we change them for the better. Mm -hmm. Do you have any concern about obsolescence of your more legacy assets? We've got a pretty big rehab crew. And so we own about 11,000 apartments and we significantly invest and reinvest in them. One, one of our key executives says it's like the Golden Gate Bridge where you start at one end and paint it. And by the time you get back from painting it, it's time to paint it again. Right. We rehab most of our rental communities every seven years or so, or every eight years. And so we do worry about the obsolescence. And so we, and, and we want to be able to stay competitive. We want to be able to raise rents. 
And so we've got a pretty strong program with reinvesting in our assets. So, so what are the 2020-2021 renovation programs consist of that is different from what you did maybe five or ten years ago in projects? Flooring materials that there's been such a move away from carpet and so almost everything we build new won't have carpeted and only in just a couple rooms. It's one of the key rehab questions is we're rehabbing, we're changing out carpet the, the cabinets are usually something we've got to invest in quite a bit. And, and when we've had a hard time understanding more is energy efficiency in older properties. It can take a lot of money to invest in that. Yeah. And sometimes in a rental community, it's hard to know, are you really going to get paid fully for that? We're giving a lot of thought to just how we should approach that issue. Probably not, but it may be something that the customers demand. What what kind of new, new things are out there that you're looking at, maybe even applying that you think might have legs? So we'll come back five years from today and have a follow-up conversation to this saying, you know, remember when we talked about A, B, and C? Boy, sure. that, that really worked out well. One of them, which is sort of the ugly stepchild right now, is co-living or different ways of living. But I look at the experience of my children. I look at the experience of their friends. So many of them, when they were living in New York or Washington or San Francisco, shared an apartment with either a friend or sometimes a stranger. The COVID has put that away. Why on earth, when there's a virus, would you live with someone you don't know? Or why? I, I think though the, the the models of co-living. I don't know if it's a student housing model. I've been spending a lot of time on student housing, saying this was before COVID, and I still think there's going to be application out there. Was, what are the student housing experiences that might be applied to market rate rental living? And it, it is driven by a couple forces. I, I think one is just expense, that if, if you're in a high cost area, if you're in New York and you can rent a bedroom for 1,700 or rent a, and share something or it's 3,500, again, I just look at my kids or their friends and so many of them had to share with strangers. So I, I think price is going to drive a lot of that. I think lifestyle is going to drive a lot of that. I mean, so many of our renters are coming out of college or they're coming out of situations where they enjoy the communal living and the programming that goes with it. So I want to go back. To, sorry, I want to go back to something in a moment, but Josh, I'm going to jump in with one of the questions I saw flash across the screen. And this is from Tim Welbes and at the Woodlands. You know Tim well, of course, uh, uh, Randall. Tim was asking, what's the new normal look like after COVID-19 in your view? So you just mentioned one thing, co-living, that you expect will come back in some form. Pardon? Yeah. Well, first, of all, I train everybody to use the phrase the new normal because I think it's going to be a, the, the new typical as opposed to the new normal. And I think there's going to be a variety of them. It's too early to tell. It's one of the things we're going to be surprised, I think, by the responses. As, as I've talked to other ULI members or YPOers, just the debate over the, what's the future of offices. And we've had some people say people are going to need more office. They're going to spread out. We've had other people say they're going to need less office. They're going to go to the suburbs. I, my answer is that in a country with hundreds of millions of people, all of the above, I think, is the answer. That the, the new typical 
is going to be 30 different flavors depending on what segment of the market you're in. And our job and the job of you and your clients will be to say, for these new typicals, what are the market opportunities? So I, I don't think there will be just one flavor. I think there's going to be a lot of flavors. We've been on that trend anyway. So that I think, is not, not, my, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I believe that is a continuation of an existing pattern of uh, more and more segmentation, more, paying more attention yes. to the segments. But if you were to um, look back five years from today and say, you know, here are, here are some of the long lasting impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, even with a vaccine, what do you think those might be, if any? This is at 10,000 feet. I think one of the impacts of, the, of what we've gone through this year, you're going to see a lot of institutions, certainly cities, but I also think many corporations are going to realize that they need money and they have too much tied up in real estate. So I know we're looking as a business model, trying to say, what are the cities or public agencies that have assets that probably should be monetized? It might have happened over time. I think it's going to happen a lot faster because the cities, the counties, the states, they're running out of money. So I think that's going to be one lasting change. Yeah. I think another lasting change that was just accelerated by COVID, it was there all along, was retail. I mean, we all know the impact of Amazon, but this has just sped it up so much that there's gonna be across the country zombie shopping centers. And it's easy to say, let's go find a five acre center and knock it down. It's very hard to find them. They may have scattered ownerships. They may have zoning issues. I think the speed up of creative reuse of retail centers across the United States is gonna be enormous. And the trick will be for people like our company and others, how do you find those opportunities? And they're very, very hard to find. But I also think that it, 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 we know it's going to happen. When we look at our shopping centers, I think the strong tenants are going to remain strong. I believe people are still going to be eating out and going to bars. That I don't think that's going to change. I think some of the small independent users they may not come back from this. And a number of them, their spaces aren't going to be replaced. Well, so what do you do with that? And I think for most of the parts of the country, that destruction that's going on in so much of the retail market, married with the crying need for housing, it's, it's a marriage that should happen. And to, to talk on innovation, how do you take existing things and use them in a new creative way? I think that's going to be one of the real opportunities for all of us. Good. I have a couple more questions, but Josh, I think uh, this might be a good time to interject a few seconds. Yeah, I jumped back in because I think there was one in particular that as you were talking about kind of macro changes, Randall, somebody had asked uh, what your thoughts were about kind of new interest in suburban development and sort of de-urbanization. If you had any thoughts about that, you know, as it relates to COVID and, and post what we're going through now. Well, certainly we have a biased perspective because almost all our work is in suburban markets, but we've had the last three weeks of our company sales in our playing communities were the strongest in the history of the company. And so, and, and stronger than in a lot of more urban areas. I think some is the flight from the urban areas. I think some is just affordability and low interest rates, but clearly in June of 2020, there's a strong movement to suburbs. I don't know how long that will last, but it's clearly huge right now. 
Yeah, I, I agree as well. And I think with that, you know, you've spoken to a lot of some of these questions here, you know, about comments you've made about what you're seeing. I mean, there's some questions just generally post-COVID, maybe design-wise, what, what changes do you anticipate or see being permanent in apartments and homes, uh, whether that's the privacy component, shift in unit mix for more dens, or you mentioned in apartments, for instance, the business centers, but any other kind of big changes that may stick around to apartments and, and homes for that matter? Yeah. Josh, I think that's a great question. It was one of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, as you design new um, single family and multifamily for rent, are you making any changes to the layout, to the function, not just uh, features? Yeah, well, I, th I think that the innovation that Lenar has promoted so well of next gen of trying to say, put another house in a house it had legs before, and it wasn't just Lennar, a lot of companies were doing it. I think that is going to get stronger going forward. I, th I think definitely the, the great room plans, there have been a couple articles in the journals just this week. It's hard in a great room plan to have three different people on the Zoom call. So I think there's going to be more nooks and crannies. We're trying to look at that. We're trying to look even more for hidden spaces, maybe under stairways or in different areas to say, where can you slide in that desk? Because you might have two, three, or four people working at the same time. We had always looked pretty hard in our apartments and others to say, let's build in a home office. We had not thought about the need for two home offices or three home offices. Right. Right now, we're trying to think hey, for so many people, you know, maybe you need not dedicated offices, but two or three places. I know there was even thought in garages as you go from the garage into the home. This is more in the house or townhouses, but people had put in landings on that's a place where you put your charger, that's a place where you throw your keys. I know some people have said, is that the place where if we have to disinfect your clothes or if you want to put your masks or something? So we're looking at those landing zones or entry zones coming from the garage into the home. So we as a company are working with a lot of our team members and the best ideas are coming not from me, but our team members, or they're coming from our consultants are all working hard to say, what does it mean and what are the lasting changes? And I, I truly think there are gonna be changes that are lasting that aren't fads. Yeah, you know, all my career, 41 years now of, uh, of working in residential real estate um, development, we have been, ardently chasing ways to eliminate walls, create open spaces, create more connectivity, uh, opportunities for people to, people to interact, congregate, and have elbow room. And uh, some of the issues you just described sort of suggest that that is not as effective when you have everybody at home all at the same time doing different things and needing more privacy. So are we gonna see a reversal are we going to see more chopping up of the space and having smaller rooms, et cetera? Or are you expecting that people simply will demand more, more space with more private spaces, but not give up necessarily on the great room and some of the other congregation opportunities? So to all of the above, I think looking 10 years forward and then looking back, you're going to see a lot of houses that will be known as vintage 2021 or vintage 2022. We and a lot of our competitors are going to say, let's build these nooks and crannies. I don't know that that will last forever. So it'll be very interesting. I know in the next two years, there's going to be a lot of them. I suspect going forward, 
the great room is not dead. There are going to be a lot of people that like the great room. And Gadi, it may be one of the things you said, it, it may be just a demand for more space so you can have the great room and a couple nooks. No. So it'll be interesting. I think so too. The, the issue with the nooks is that if you don't have a door on it, then the Zoom meeting is shared by everybody, uh, at least the noise, uh, both in uh, into the Zoom and out of the Zoom is, is now public. So uh, it, it doesn't really help, but we'll see how that develops. I think you're absolutely right. I also think that your earlier comment about uh, home offices and, and workspaces, particularly in apartment buildings, in single family rental complexes, you do have an opportunity to create a co-working environment that is designed around small glass cubicles that allow people privacy, sound insulation, but uh, also um, have a solution for how to uh, have two people working, quote, from home, while one is in the house and the other is in the co-working center. Um, and, and that's, I mean, we're already hearing stories from our customers where one of the people will work in the patio or work in the house or work in the garage. Right. I think we as developers can create some opportunity so they don't have to work out of their garage or work yep. out of their car. Josh, do you have another question? Yeah, I think those, that's great in terms of how uh, some of these trends may stick around, may revert back. I think one that, that probably is going to be here for the long haul is kind of the idea of these healthy places. And there's a question, Randall, for you about how you guys are creating healthy places throughout your communities and in your product now. Sure. This is something we've been involved in for 20 years as a company. And in fact, at Urban Land, I'll put in a commercial, there's something called the Building Healthy Places Initiative. And if any of you want to learn more, go to the Urban Land Institute Building Healthy Places. They've got great resources. We look at health in a lot of different ways. We look at it first in the physical structure. How do we promote? We, we put in walking trails in our communities. We put in community gardens. We try to make it as easy as possible for people to exercise. But we take a much broader of health, look at health too. We, we try to look to say, can we do something in the overall community? So places where we do business, there's programs, Healthy Rancho Cucamonga, Healthy Chino, Healthy Fontana. We've been real involved in helping get those started because health, health applies at so many levels. I think the next wave that's gonna come is the buildings themselves. And so there's a really great book that just came out by a YPO and a ULI named John McComber, and it's called Building Healthy Buildings. And I'm only about 40 pages into it. But it really talks about what you need to do on the air quality and other things. So I, I think the health and wellness is only going to get stronger. And COVID, like so many other things, accelerated the trend. But it's been there for 20 or 30 years. We are deeply committed to healthy places. Yeah. yeah, and I think you personally as well, there's a comment here about some of your um, devoted and sort of exceptional philanthropy over time, in particular with Urban Land Institute, I think the Health Leaders Program and the Health Internship Program. And uh, the question to you then is, you know, why do you think health promoting real estate, which is obviously just something you've been doing, you just mentioned for 20, 30 years, is so important? And how'd you come to actually create these programs or get involved with that to begin with, kind of ahead of your time? That probably came from a ULI staff member, I would guess. It, it came from about 20 and 25 years ago. My parents were both sick and I spent a lot of time at the hospital and a lot of things that ailed them were things that were lifestyle driven. They, they could have prevented some of those. And so I got involved really studying health. And then in maybe about 2000, got very involved with this people from the Center for Disease Control and a group called Robert Wood Johnson. 
who's fantastic. So much of what I do comes from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And realize that things that today are common nature, that place matters, where you live matters, your zip codes matters on health. It's just something I've been so involved in for 20 years. In terms of ULI, I, I have a strong desire to give back to make the world a better place and hopefully be profitable so I can keep doing that and my brothers and our company can keep doing it. I got involved at Urban Land Institute because it's a great intellectual repository, but also as a way of giving back. It's one thing if Randall Lewis and our company does good stuff, but if we can change patterns over the United States and over the world, what a phenomenal way to leverage philanthropy. So I have found ULI has been a great institution, as have some of the colleges and many others. We're working with a local hospital that's got a healthy community initiative we're sponsoring. And again, it's, it's one thing, I could go to meetings, I could do stuff, but with these outsiders, we have professionals who are way more talented than I am and who can reach tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people. And it's just a way to make my effectiveness a lot better. So it's something I keep it's a great leverage to your money and to your yeah. efforts. So, uh, yes. good, well, good in a side, very selfish point of view, by doing this, you get access to the best minds. Right. And so you can learn what are the very best practices to. Terrific. Well, I hope many of the listeners will um, be inspired by this conversation to jump in and help and participate either by providing effort, best practices, examples, opportunities to work with, and hopefully even money. So yes. it, it, it's all good. Randall, I wanted to ask, uh, circle back before we wrap up and go back to the issue of innovation and creativity sure. and the creation of a culture or a company that is sort of oriented to perpetuate these things. So when you decide to retire, it doesn't all die away because now the father of inspiration for innovation at uh, Lewis is, is, has retired and is no longer uh, around, not that you ever will retire, but how do you perpetuate that? How do you create the culture and perpetuate the attitudes that end up yielding innovation, creativity, and entrepreneurship in a company that is, you know, multi-generational, large, and uh, a lot of people around? How do you keep it going? Yeah. Well, first, I, I think we've tried to create a culture of being a learning organization and a company that's always willing to try different things. And I, I get credit for a lot of the innovations in the company. My brothers give me a lot of advice. Our key executives give a lot of advice. But some of the best ideas come from our workers that are dealing with the customers in the field. So part of what we do for culture, we do a lot of work with our employees. A number of us meet with employees every month. We pick a group of eight for breakfast just to say, what's going on in the properties? Tell us what's happening, what's going on in your department. So I think we'll try to continue that quite a bit. We, we spend a lot of time, and, and this is more me. I mean, I've been blessed by my brothers that they let me spend time in this, but I spend a lot of time trying to look within our industry, who are the innovators, but I spend at least half of those efforts outside our industry. And, and so I just think for whatever someone is doing, if you look outside the industry, I mean, some of the things we did in the last 20 years, came from looking at Walmart and looking at Amazon or looking at Southwest Airlines. And so I think for me, one of the gifts I hope to leave the company will be to make sure that culture of always learning from the inside, learning from your people, dealing with the customers, 
but then always saying, be active in the industry, spend a lot of time out in the field in the industry, but spend so much time out of the industry. I mean, we in real estate think we're smart and many of us are, many of us aren't. But boy, there's some smart people in tech and in automotive and in everything. And Very so again, it, it'll be, get out of your industry and look around it. The same should be school is always in session. There's always a chance to learn. And that, that's something we're pretty obsessed with as a company. And I think it will carry on with our, our employees and hopefully my children who may or may not be watching. I know it will carry on with them because it's the life that they've grown up with. Good, good, good counsel, Randall. What, uh, what structure, if any, exists at Lewis for innovation? Do you have an innovation committee? Do you have an innovation summit annually or something like that? Do you have any... Uh, 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 visit, visiting lectures that come in on a regular basis to uh, expose on innovation. How, how do you? One of the things we do that's been very good, we, we try to work with our key architects and almost all of them come in at least once a year to say what's on the boards, what, what's happening out there. I know with the COVID crisis, one of them came in and gave a great presentation. It was KTGY just on the innovations that they're looking at. So we try to bring in a lot of outsiders who, who typically we're working with, working with our interior design firms to say, what are you hearing from your customers? Again, and it, it, not just our company. So I think we do a very good job of that. We don't necessarily have an innovation committee that probably would be a good idea, but we, we do a lot of brainstorming sessions we, we have a meeting every Wednesday morning, we call the product meeting, and maybe half is about projects, but half are workshops or just trying to say what's out there. I mean, right now, one of the things we're looking at, back to health, we know 24-hour fitness declared bankruptcy. We know a lot of other chains. Right. So we're trying to think with that going on, where so many of the customers there are gonna be looking for health, does it give us an opportunity to try to do more to, to attract those members. The other thing we're trying to look at just on health is to say not all the health happens in the gymnasium. And I'm learning that a lot as I'm looking at this. It could be walking clubs, it could be cooking classes, it could be socialization for mental health. So we've got a team of people just looking at that. I challenged them in the last couple of weeks with what's going on in the gym industry. How do we leverage that to learn from them to take advantage of some of the suffering that they're going through. Here's my last question then, Todd. Uh, Josh, I'll turn it over to you. Um, Randall, looking out, uh, you, you um, are one of the most networked people I know. So you talk to a lot of people, you read a lot, you watch a lot, and you think a lot. So from what you hear others predicting for the future over the next three, six, 12 months, what do you think is going to be the big surprise? Where Where is the the conventional thinking going to prove to be wrong uh, in a year from today or over the next year or so? What do you think? I don't think these will be surprises, but I think they're going to be dramatic shifts. And this will be the one part where I'll probably get murdered for saying this stuff. But I, I think the impacts of climate change are going to impact the real estate industry far faster and more deeply. Something as simple as getting insurance and fire fire zones, something is getting flood insurance and flood zones, something about will there be great migrations, not over one year or five years, but over 10 or 20 or 30 years. I think 
we are minimizing the impacts of climate change on, on the planet, but specifically for those of us who deal in fixed assets. I think that's going to be very significant. Very I think a second, yeah. and again, this is out there, but there's been a lot of dialogue on sort of the future of capitalism. I, I believe capitalism is a great system, but there's been a lot of discussion. Does it need to get modified in any way for a system that can work for more people? And some are talking about that for altruistic reasons, but some are looking at it for selfish reasons. If, if the system doesn't work, will you have more rent strikes or more programs? I don't know where that goes, but I think we're going to see whichever party is in office, we're going to see a lot of discussions about capitalism and just are there new models that need to be invented for a system that works equitably for everyone in the United States. Those are two big thoughts, and I, I, I am uh, amazed that um, that's, that's how you think. Uh, I guess not amazed in a negative way, but in a very positive way that uh, and both these topics deserve to be explored uh, in depth, and maybe we can do that in one of our CEO summit sessions that you've been such a good participant of, or uh, ULI and other places. But these definitely are big issues that face us, and they're not about COVID-19. They're way bigger. No, they're way bigger than do you put in an extra nook under the stairway. Exactly yeah. right. Thank you for bringing up to our attention. Josh, you get the rest of the time. What other questions? Yeah, great. We have a few more minutes. A few more minutes here, so we'll try to do maybe a couple rapid fire. Although, you know, there's so many positive comments coming in for you, Randall, on sort of your teaching and what you've been able to share on innovation through many of the listeners right now. I think two of the innovation questions that uh, that have popped up are: one, uh, do you see innovative ways of bringing more home buyers into ownership and out of renting? We talked a little bit about SFR, maybe the opposite, bringing people in and, and you having that longer life cycle with the client, but how do, how do we get them from the renter to the ownership model? And have you seen anything there? Or do you believe there's any innovation that's trying to help with that? Well, the innovation, and I think this is gonna come from companies like Robert Charles Lesser, will be creating predictive technology through artificial intelligence that can understand more about a renter's life. And that will say, if somebody gets married, there's probably going to be a change in status. If somebody has two kids, there's probably going to be a change of status if somebody retires. And how to say, how can we look at these life changes and the life cycles with people and the life stages and then say, who are the right people that say, this is someone who ought to move into home ownership or should move to a, a lateral to something else. Right now, I don't, we don't have the technology for that. We try to do it manually, it's very difficult. But I think it's something smart companies, and maybe it'll be Zillow or Google or someone else, will be able to come up with predictive technology to help us understand what's happening in our customers' lives and how to get them to the next stage. And then education will just be key. You know, we, we hear so often from renters, they, they just don't know how to buy a house and they don't know, especially now with where you can get a loan at 3% or 2.9%, well, it's a great time to buy a house, but they don't know how to do it. So I think those would be two key ways. That's fantastic. You know, the, the technology comment you made, allow me to jump in, Josh, real quickly. Uh, in the next few days, we'll have another conversation like this with um, Casey Berman from uh, Canberra Creek which is a venture capital firm, that uh, private equity firm that specializes in investing in 
real estate technology companies. And uh, I, I'll make sure to bring these topics up because I yeah. agree with you 100%. And uh, the issue is there's a big dislocation between the three elements here. Uh, there are lots of people in real estate, but they don't understand technology and they may not have money for technology. There are lots of people with private equity money, but they don't understand necessarily technology or real estate. Uh, and then there are a lot of people in technology that have great ideas, but they don't necessarily have, uh, and, and they might even have access to capital, but they don't necessarily have access to real estate. So I think Casey's business, uh, because he comes from a real estate background and he has assembled uh, a team of uh, uh, you know managers and professionals that are all from real estate backgrounds with investment experience uh, would be a good bridge to it. And it'll be very interesting to, uh, I'd love to talk, talk about this topic. Sorry? Maybe, love to talk, maybe 15 years ago, I got to fly to Microsoft and they were trying to get into some sectors of real estate. And I started out saying, I don't know much about technology or computers. And they said, trust us, we know a lot at Microsoft. Just talk to us about techno about real estate and we'll handle the technology. It's, it's the real estate knowledge they needed, yeah. exactly. So interesting times ahead of us. I think we should call it a That's day. Great. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a kind of big topics to end on. The rest are kind of, you know, little one-off questions. And we can certainly try to follow up with folks that have asked uh, since these will be posted online as well. But, but I think that's a good place to, to end. So I'll go off and let you let you say your goodbye, but thank you to both of you for letting me participate as well. Thank you, Josh and uh, Randall. Uh, I immensely enjoyed our conversation. I hope uh, not much of a torture for you. We'll do a follow-up in a few back. weeks. Okay. Great, buddy. Thank you for the opportunity. You bet. Thank you, Matt. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.